Welcome back to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. In this episode, we're continuing a recent session from the University of Arizona College of Medicine titled Respiratory Management of Children with Neuromuscular Diseases. Let's return now to presenter Dr. Corey Danes from the University of Arizona. There are lots of other considerations that we have to think about for these patients. And a lot of these will go into quality of life, but they'll also go into maintaining that respiratory support. So physical therapy is not going to do a whole heck of a lot for your Duchenne muscular dystrophy patient in terms of maintaining them. But it might keep them from getting contractures, and it might actually help their quality of life. Adaptive devices, you don't want them working so hard that they are having difficulty breathing. Give them the rest that they need. Adaptive devices can help them with that. Scoliosis prevention is a biggie. Some patients need surgery, but you know, truthfully, just giving them good lung volumes during the day and keeping the lungs inflated goes a long way towards preventing the scoliosis that can happen progressively with neuromuscular disease. Pain management, people who have pain do not cough effectively. They do not take deep breaths. So you wanna make sure that you're handling that appropriately. And then surgery is always a problem with these patients. They're gonna need it. Some of them are gonna have it. You want to try to make sure that they get surgery when they're optimized for it, that it's time when they're healthy and a time when things are good. But you're gonna to have to talk to the surgeon and the anesthesiologist and make sure that you're doing things appropriately, that you're using the right kind of anesthesia, that you're not giving them a neuromuscular blockade that they cannot handle, that you're trying to avoid long-term sedation, long-term mechanical ventilation in these patients, that you're getting them extubated up and moving as quickly as possible. So you need to really think about those surgical things ahead of time. And then you can run into complications, which is going to happen. All of this related to the failing of the four E's. So your airway clearance won't always work, and you're going to end up with pneumonias. You're going to end up with atelectasis. You may end up with lung damage and bronchiectasis in some of these patients. Respiratory failure happens, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. And pulmonary hypertension and core pulmonale because of the respiratory pump failing as well. Most of the time when respiratory failure occurs, it's either because of an illness are because of a surgery or something that was planned. And often the initial respiratory failure is because of something acute that's happening. If you can avoid long-term invasive ventilation, do in these patients. It's better if they can avoid being intubated and sedated and not clearing secretions. It's better to keep the lungs open and to keep them ventilated that way. Instituting manual airway clearance, assisted cough techniques as early as possible in order to try to help them to keep their lungs clear. Preventing atelectasis, keeping them inflated, using enough volume when you're ventilating these patients that you can keep them open. Controlling their pain but limiting their sedation so that you can get them to cough and clear on their own. And then trying to get them extubated if they are intubated as quickly as possible because the longer it goes on, the weaker they become and the harder it gets to try to get them extubated. So acute respiratory failure, there's always the debate between invasive and non-invasive ventilation. You don't always have a choice. They're sick, they can't tolerate it, they need to be intubated. That can happen. But if you have a choice, studies have shown that non-invasive ventilation causes there to be a lower mortality, shorter ICU stays, and they're less likely to need long-term ventilation. In several prospective studies, now these were adults with ALS, so it's a little bit different population, they looked at patients who came into an ICU setting, and most of them that started out with non-invasive ventilation, around 80%, were able to continue that and never needed to progress to invasive ventilation. So if we can, it's better to try that way. 
When you reach the point where you've got chronic respiratory failure, again, trying to do this non-invasively is probably preferable to most families. There are lots of interfaces you can use, nasal masks, full face masks, nasal pillows. Those are all good for sleep. For daytime interfaces, we've got lip seals and mouthpieces and sippers that we can hook up to ventilators that can be used on demand or continuously during the day in patients who don't want to have invasive ventilation as they move forward in their lives. Nocturnal ventilation should be instituted when it's needed early on. Don't wait. There's really good evidence that when you use the nocturnal ventilation, you actually help them during the day. They have better ventilation, decreased work of breathing, increased compliance, it improves their SAO2. It helps them during the day and will actually make them healthier longer if you institute the nighttime ventilation sooner. And usually this is progressive. It starts with just needing it with illness, goes to needing it at nighttime, and then all the time. So when do you do a trach? Usually this is the discussion that you're having with your families in clinic. It's when they want it. It's when they feel like this is the best way to handle their kids. It's when you decide and they decide that it's time. If you're unable to get them off the ventilator and they're invasively ventilated, then sometimes you have to. So if they fail extubation, you may need to do that. If they can't tolerate non-invasive ventilation, then you may have to do it. And then the last thing, and this happens a lot with our cerebral palsy kids especially, they can't handle their secretions. They need to be suctioned all the time. They can't cough effectively. They're aspirating. There's an uncontrollable need, and non-invasive ventilation is not going to work. So I have a few cases. So now that you've learned everything, I want you to think through this with me. These are all patients that I see in clinic, and so I'll give you some data. The first one is a 15-year-old young man who has Duchenne's. He was hospitalized about three months before I saw him with a pneumonia, was in the hospital for about a week, then out of the hospital for about a week, and recovered, but then recently had an upper respiratory tract infection, which lasted for a couple of weeks. He coughs, and in the morning, he has a little bit of mucus every morning, even when he's well. But he sleeps well, says he's rested, doesn't have any trouble when he sleeps, says everything is fine. Here were his PFTs a year ago. So what we've got, restrictive pattern, his forced vital capacity is 53% of predicted, his FEV1 is 56% of predicted. So that's pretty good. Not great. <laughs> but good enough that it's not under my 50% to say, oh my goodness, this kiddo needs something, needs inter intervention. His MIPS and MEPS are a little low. MIP is minus 40, MEP is 38, and his cough peak flow is 200. So he's a little weak. Weak enough that he has issues with secretions when he gets sick. So he ought to have a cough assist machine at home, and he does, but he only uses it when he's sick. His SATs are fine, 96% here on room air. This is when he comes to me, see me, and what you just saw for the clinical scenario. Here's where he is now. His FEC is down to 40. His FEV1 is at 38. He's dropped his maximal inspiratory pressure to 29, and he can't do a cough peak flow for me because he's too weak. So now I'm worried. And my thought here is that he's dropped down below that 50%, and I'm worried that this young man needs more than what we're giving him. So we do a sleep study. This boy was having very restless sleep all throughout the night. And then what happens, as he progresses in sleeps and starts going into REM sleep, he starts having respiratory events. So he's having a lot of apneas and hypopneas and very disrupted sleep, which is consistent with that FEC dropping down to 40%. This young man was placed on BiPAP at nighttime at this point, based on this sleep study. A second case, this one a little older, 25 years old. He had pneumonia two months ago, he was hospitalized, never felt like he recovered appropriately. And when I'm watching him here in clinic, he is breathless at baseline. He cannot speak in a full sentence. He gives me two words. That's all he'll do. He is malnourished significantly. He weighs 60 pounds. 
His weight is down 10% in the last six months, 25% in the last year. He's already been on BiPAP, he sleeps with it at nighttime, and he says he's fine during the day in terms of sleepiness. He doesn't have any symptoms, but he's very, very tired. So here's PFTs a year ago, 22 and 25. So obviously this is a young man with significant insufficiency. He needs to be on some support, and he is at nighttime. And he has a cough assist, and he uses his cough assist. His maximal inspiratory pressure is minus 22. His pulse ox is 99. His cough peak flow is at 200. And he does actually have a cough assist and uses it, and uses his BiPAP. Here's right before the pneumonia. He's down to 14 and 16 with his lung capacity. His MIP has dropped to 18, his MEP has dropped to 17, and his cough peak flow is down to 180. He still feels fine. This is before he got pneumonia. SATs are 99%. We didn't change anything at this point. Here's the day you saw me in clinic. I don't know that I've ever seen anybody measure a 7 before. He's doing a lot of that glossopharyngeal breathing that I talked about. His MIP is now minus 8. His cough peak flow is down to 115, and his SATs are down to 94. This young man needs daytime ventilation. He is in respiratory failure right here, right now. We ordered him a portable ventilator, got him a sipper interface, got him a mouthpiece so that he can use his ventilator during the day. He's using his cough assist regularly, and he needs a G-tube, but we can't get him a G-tube until he's safe enough to undergo the anesthesia. And so we're working on that. And we did talk about everything from what types of ventilation to a tracheostomy tube and everything else, and he said no to the trach, but that he wanted to do non-invasive ventilation during the day. We actually did try to get him admitted. We felt like that would be the best and safest thing to do. In the meantime, while we were waiting for the ventilator, he put his BiPAP on 24-7 and didn't leave his bed. So he did go home and do non-invasive ventilation all the time. Third one is a 20-year-old with Becker muscular dystrophy, which as most of you know is not quite as severe as the Duchenne. This young man has just some muscle fatigue when he's walking, sleeps well, but he's tired in the morning, and he doesn't necessarily feel like he had a great night's sleep. He's kind of restless during his sleep. No pneumonias, no coughing, no mucus, feels great with, from a respiratory standpoint, but he did get antibiotics once last year for chest pain. X-ray was normal at the time. Here are his lung function numbers. Normal probably better than I could do today. Last year they were normal as well. His MIP was minus 107, MEP was 70, pulse ox was normal, and his cough peak flow was 450. So he's okay respiratory-wise. He doesn't seem to need anything. But you know what we did? We did a sleep study, and we did it on him because of his symptoms, not because of his FVC or anything else, but because he had this daytime somnolence. And this, again, is normal. One, two respiratory events, period, and then his arousals. He did not have any problems. He just wasn't sleeping enough. He needed to go to bed earlier. <laughs> so he's normal, and he's someone you can see maybe once a year and follow up and make sure that he doesn't progress. This kiddo can't do a PFT for you. She's five. She's very weak. She's got myotonic dystrophy, as do almost all of her family members. Her problem, she's been hospitalized with recurrent pneumonia at least seven times in the last year. Most of you have met her. <laughs> and at baseline, when she's well, no cough, no dyspnea. She doesn't eat by mouth. She has a G-tube. She's failed swallowing studies in the past, but she really, really, really wants to eat. So are you going to let her? Here is her sleep study. Very, very many arousals, lots and lots of arousals. She had been tried on BiPAP at nighttime and failed it miserably, kept taking it off. She's five. Won't leave it on. Comes off. We tried multiple interfaces. Off it comes. So we settled and decided that because of all these desaturations, we'd put her on oxygen. Her sat stabilized out. 
She's still arousing, but we don't see an increase in respiratory events. So at least we didn't make it worse, because I'm worried about central apnea in this kiddo, but we didn't make it worse. So we're going to continue with that. This is a kiddo that you kind of make compromises on. She's on oxygen at home. She doesn't wear a BiPAP. She has a cough assist machine. She uses it by family report four times a day, every day, regardless of sickness or health. And they want to feed her. Can I let her feed? I haven't yet. <laughs> what I've said is that because I think most of these illnesses are related to illness, not because of aspiration, that she can work with a speech therapist and we can see. So we'll see. Quality of life. The last one is one that you see all the time. This is a young lady with cerebral palsy, microcephaly, seizure disorder. She has a G-tube. She doesn't eat by mouth. But she has horrible sialuria. She's drooling all the time. She chokes on it. And she's had one pneumonia six months ago, a bad case of bronchitis three months ago, and bad scoliosis. So she's got lung disease. She's got scoliosis. She won't tolerate a BiPAP machine anyway. We've tried that on her again subjectively. And she won't tolerate it. So what did we do with her? We did an overnight SAT study on her, and her SATs were normal, so she didn't actually need oxygen at nighttime. We instrumented, we started her on something to control her oral secretions. We got her on albuterol. We started doing airway clearance. We've got her a vest. She tried a cough assist machine, hated it. So we actually just do the vest and the airway clearance. And she stayed pretty healthy, and we haven't seen progression of her lung disease yet. But you're going to be making these decisions all the time. How do you handle these kiddos? Does she need a trach? Does she have bad enough secretions that she can't handle it? Not yet. Not yet. So our outcomes depend on our kids. SMA, the kiddos die before a year if they have SMA1 sometimes. Muscular dystrophy, they're living into their 40s now at times. CP may live long lives as well. A lot of our lesser muscular dystrophies live long lives as well. There are new therapies for a lot of our muscular dystrophies. Gene therapy for our, for our Duchenne patients. Enzyme replacement for our mucopolysaccharidoses. We think that we will be providing longer lives for most of these patients as we progress, so we need to keep them healthy. But it takes a team. And the team is centered around the patient and the family to begin with. But here's where the pediatrician or the family practitioner comes in. They're the interface with all the rest of us, with the neurologist, with the gastroenterologist, with the cardiologist, with the rehab people, with the orthopedist. It takes a team to manage these patients. And so we need to be communicating with one another so that we can provide the best care that we can for them. And that's it. You have been listening to a session of Grand Rounds from the University of Arizona College of Medicine, presented on ReachMD's series, Grand Rounds Nation. Be sure to join us again for the next episode of the nation's best Grand Rounds. Until then, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and thanks for listening.